not my first time to be with Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, and so it's always a joy to be with you. Uh, if you don't know me, I, I think they did a little introduction, but I, I do want to just highlight I'm not just some stranger, okay? Not just somebody Jacob pulled off the street. And, and the reason I say that is because um, I, I highly value the local church, and Hamilton Baptist has, um, has, has me as one of their pastors, and so I just, like, there's, there's a love that I have for the local church and our church, but also being with you guys, there's an affection that I have for you guys as well, and so it truly is a pleasure to be here to be able to preach God's word. So we're going to spend our time this morning in John 17. So if you have a Bible and you, uh, it, it would be helpful for you to open that up, we will just work our way through the passage. So John 17, and we're going to be in verses 6 through 19 this morning. And so as you're finding your way there, I want to give you uh, just a little bit of context because we are jumping into the middle of a prayer. It's Jesus' prayer. It's often called the high priestly prayer or a prayer of consecration and even sometimes called the other Lord's Prayer. And so uh, we will dive in. We're in the middle of this. And just to, to kind of think about the parts of it, verses 1 through 5, that's where Jesus is, is asking the Father, Hey, Father, glorify me, to which that like, automatically just kind of makes me pause and just think, if I'm, if I'm going to ask God to glorify me, it's probably a selfish type of glory I'm asking for. But Christ is saying, Father, glorify me that I might then in turn make much of you. And so he's, he's asking for God's help to glorify him for what's to come. That is the cross, which is, lies right ahead of him in just a few hours. And then what we're going to see today is Jesus transitions to praying for the disciples. And then the very end of that prayer is where he prays for the future church. And even has us in view, which is really crazy to think about. Our Savior praying for us 2,000 years ago. And so we are going to be in the middle of this prayer, but it's a prayer that is the longest recorded prayer of Christ. And we, it's like we, the, the curtain is pulled back. And we just get to see this glimpse of Jesus, the Son, praying to his Father. This very beautiful and intimate prayer. And so before we dive in, let's pray now. Father, I thank you for time this morning that we get to open your word, that we get to see our Savior praying for his disciples. And so would you help us to even just pause? Would you quiet the noise in our minds and quiet the fears in our heart maybe that are going on because we know what lies ahead the rest of today? Or maybe we're thinking about what lies ahead the rest of this week. So would you help us to be freed from distraction that we might see you and our Savior in this passage, that we might delight in you and be provoked to greater love and affection for you and our Savior. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, at the end of someone's life, uh, it's common where family and friends will gather around them, especially if you know there's there's maybe a few hours or days left in somebody's life where people will gather around them, loved ones. And they'll share stories, they'll remember great things about that person, and perhaps they'll even pray for that person. 
And we see a, a similar situation here in this passage, but yet it's also just a little bit different. Jesus is just hours before his death. He knows it's coming. His disciples are gathered around, but instead of the disciples sharing stories about, hey, you remember the time when Jesus did this? Do you remember the awesome time when Jesus performed this miracle when he turned water into wine or he fed the 5,000? Instead of them recounting and rejoicing what their Savior has done, he's praying for them. So that in a way, the, the table is a little turned, right? Where he gathers his people his disciples, and they're there listening to him pray. And as we dive into this passage, we're going to see uh, two, we're going to look at it with two questions, and we'll answer both of those questions. Um, But let's first read, and then we will dive in. So follow along as I read, beginning in John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So we see our Savior praying to his heavenly Father. And I want us to think about these two questions today. So the first question I want us to to consider is who does Jesus pray for? And we're going to see that answered in verses 6 through the first part of verse 11. And we're going to see that he prays for his disciples. And then the second question we're going to address is, what does Jesus pray for? We're going to see that answered in the last part of verse 11 through the end of the passage we're considering today, which is verse 19. So who does Jesus pray for? Well, he prays for his disciples. Right? Jesus has turned his, his attention from asking God the Father, glorify me, that I can then glorify you, to now praying for his disciples. Even in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people who you've given me out of the world. So when he says, I've, I've manifested your name, he's saying, I've made you known, I've made your character known to these people. It's the ones that you've given to me. 
It's the ones that he has revealed, or, or the ones that the Father has given to him. Those are the ones that Christ is teaching about the character of the Father. He says even, continuing on in verse 6, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. So he continues to, to show us more and more of these people that Jesus is praying for, these disciples, it's these people that were given to him from the Father. And these people are ones who are keeping his word. So then I think we should even ask the question to that. Well, what, what does Jesus mean by they've kept your word? Verses 7 and 8 are helpful there. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came for you. And what else? They have believed that you sent me. So this idea that they've, they've kept the word, these people, these followers, these disciples are ones who keep the word. It's not saying that they've obeyed Jesus like every single word that's come out of his mouth. Because we could just look back to the Gospels and see that the disciples aren't perfectly obeying Jesus every moment of their day. They failed him many times, but yet they are ones who have received the words of Christ. They've received the gospel. They've embraced the, the central truths of our faith. They believe that Christ is the only means of salvation. He's the only way to be reconciled to God. So if you're here today and you actually you, you find yourself saying, well, I... I like this idea of a God, I want to know him, but yet I've not placed faith in him. Or even maybe you're like, well, I'm a little skeptical, right? These Christians are kind of weird people. They meet every Sunday morning. Like, who does that unless you're out at the soccer field with your kids, right? But in case you're here, you're curious about who God is. We believe that based on his word, that every single one of us have rebelled, have turned from him. And that because of that, we deserve separation from God, the perfect, holy God. But yet he doesn't give us the stiff arm. He doesn't say, get away from me. I'm not going to have anything to ever do with you again. He, out of his love, sends the Savior, the one who's the very words we're considering today, to die on a cross. A death he did not deserve, but yet willingly gave up his life that you would believe in him and be forgiven of your sins. And then he's raised from the grave, offering re resurrection to all who would believe in him. And so this is the gospel. This is what the disciples there have believed. It's Jesus is the only way to the Father. And then Jesus goes on to say, verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. So Jesus is praying not generally for everyone in the world. He's praying specifically. And it sounds perhaps maybe a little harsh, a little cold, that Jesus says, well, I'm praying for my disciples and nobody else right now. But in fact, you guys have done that this morning, right? You've, you're, you're, you've heard the word read. You've had prayers of adoration and confession. And that confession isn't sin for the world at large. It's for this church. 
And so we do the same thing at my church. I do the same thing for my own kids. You probably have done it for your kids and your grandkids where you set aside time and you say, Father, I see my kids. I want to bring them before you right now that you would draw their hearts to you, that you would knit them so close to you that nothing will come between them and you. So you see this tenderness that Jesus is actually saying, Father, I'm not praying for everybody in the world right now. I'm praying for my disciples. I'm praying for the ones gathered around me that have embraced the gospel. And so instead of it sounding like it's a harsh word, we actually ought to, as Christians, see this as something that brings great comfort and great delight to us because our Savior has prayed for his disciples because he loves them. And also, I think we can extend that to all of his disciples. He's concerned for all of them. He prays for all of us. Even Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus, even today, continues to intercede for his people. And so, Christian, let that simple yet true fact that Christ intercedes for you be a comfort to you. So this week, if you have a doctor's appointment, you go and you get bad news. Let the truth that Christ prays for his people be a comfort to you, even in the midst of bad news. Or if you're at work and you fail to get that new account at work, let the truth that Christ still prays for you make your soul steadfast in him because he loves you. So if difficulty comes this week, we can rest assured Christ continues to intercede for his people. He prays for his disciples. Right? He, he prays here for all those who belong to him. And then those last few words where he says, I'm turning them back over to you, Father. So he's saying, God, while, they, while I was here with them, they have been protected. They've been guarded by me. And now I'm leaving you or I'm leaving them and I'm returning to you. So he's praying for them. But now let's consider, now that we know who he's prayed for, let's consider what he prays for his disciples. So verses 11, the latter part of 11 through 19, we're going to see what does Jesus pray for in this very first part. We're going to see this in two parts. One is Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. And then second, we're going to consider Jesus praying for their, uh, where to go? Jesus prays for their sanctification. So this first part, Jesus prays for their protection. Look at verse 11, beginning with Holy Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, while I was with them. I've kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying for their protection, right? He says, while I was with them, I've kept them. I've guarded them. And now that I'm leaving this world and returning to you, Father, I'm asking you to guard them, to keep them. To which we should ask the question again, well, what type of protection is Jesus referring to? 
Is it a physical protection? To which we might all say, well, I would love that to be true. I would love for God the Father to protect me from anything physically that may harm me. But we could just look at the life of the disciples and know that's not, that's not what Jesus meant here. Every single one of the disciples killed for their faith. John, the writer of this gospel that we're considering now, exiled to the island of Patmos. So I believe he's praying for, for protection from two things. One, I think he's, he's saying, Father, would you protect them that their faith would persevere? Father, protect them that they wouldn't fall away from me when difficulty comes. Jesus, protect, uh, or Father, protect my followers, right? Guard them, keep them. But then there's this part about this son of destruction. What does Jesus mean here? Right, he says, verse 12, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So I think the short answer to that, the short explanation is Judas was never one of the disciples. He might have been a friend. He might have even been a close friend for three and a half years during Jesus' ministry. But that scripture that's being fulfilled that's talked about here is Psalm 41 verse 9 that was prophesied hundreds of years before. It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So Judas was never a disciple. He was certainly a follower. Or, I mean, he was, he, was, he was a close friend and one who followed Jesus, but not truly one who belonged to Jesus. Jesus has never, never not even once, lost anyone that was given to him. So I want you to hear that again. Jesus has never, not once, lost anyone that the Father gave to him. I don't know if you as a parent have ever lost a child in a store or you as a child were lost in a store and got displaced from your family. I remember I was probably six, maybe seven years old. And we were in the grocery, I was in the grocery store with my mom. And somehow, I don't know if, if I just wasn't wasn't paying attention and she called my name and I didn't hear it and she started heading off but somehow I did not was not with my mom and I looked the aisle over and I looked the next aisle and I still didn't see her and she had taught me hey if, if you're if we're ever in a store and I'm not with you you can't find me then what do you do well you go to the front right make them call me over the speaker and you just stay put right there and I will come and get you but I, I even, I'm 38 now, and that was 30 years-ish ago, and I still remember being in the store, having this memory of fear, of worry. Like my mom, the one who's there to help protect me and look over me, care for me, guard me, I'm not with her. And it brought fear, because I was displaced from her. But Christ has never lost one of his children, not even for a second. And this ought to be great news for you and I, right? And even we hear this conversation between Jesus and the Father. It's, it's as if he's saying these things. I think he actually is saying these things so that his disciples hear this. Because look at verse 13. 
But now I, Jesus, am coming to you, the Father, and these things I speak in the world. So, hey, disciples, get a clue. Listen up. I'm saying them now so you hear them. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So it's like we get this little peek into this conversation between Jesus and the Father. And he's saying, hey, disciples, everything you're hearing right now, I'm saying them to my Father, but it's so that you might be encouraged. That you might have my joy fulfilled in you. And so let me ask you, even now, as you're hearing these truths, are you rejoicing in Christ this morning? Are you filled full of joy today because you know that Christ has forgiven you? That you stand as righteous before a holy God, not because of anything you've done but because of Christ's righteousness? Are you delighting in God because he protects and he keeps you in Christ through the Spirit? How full of joy are you today as you are singing, now receiving the word? And you might even kind of be thinking right now, well, if I answer this honestly, I'm actually kind of struggling for joy this morning. Even hearing these truths, I'm still fighting and wrestling for joy in life. To which I would say, that can be the case. There can be things in our life that weigh us down. And so reflecting on these truths that Christ has done for us, his prayer of protection over us, let that marinate in your mind that it might produce an affection for Christ and the Father in your life. So we can take comfort knowing that even your salvation isn't dependent on you. Your salvation is not dependent on you. You know this, right? But think about how joy-robbing that would be if it were dependent on you. Every little thing you do, every decision that seems to be a, a very simple decision now becomes extremely weighty because my eternal destiny depends on me choosing the right thing every single decision I have. Thank God your salvation is not dependent on you. There is this omnipotent, this omniscient God, the one who sees all things, who's caring for you, protecting you, protecting your salvation. And so God the Father with all the resources of heaven at his disposal protects you and preserves your faith. So nothing, absolutely nothing, can take you from the Father. So Christ prays this prayer of protection to preserve their faith. The second thing I think he's praying for in their protection is protection from Satan and from evil. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is asking the Father, protect them. Protect my disciples. Protect them from the evil one. So what is this this world that's spoken of? What's It's anything that's opposed to God. And so 
the world has hated them. The world hates Jesus' disciples because his disciples are different. So we cannot withdraw from the world because we have the message of salvation. We can't conform to the world because we are meant to represent Christ to the world. So what do we do? Right, if we're not to withdraw and segregate, but we're also not supposed to conform, well, we let the world hate us. But we continue declaring the message of salvation. We continue living like Jesus, representing him to the world. And if that means that things come upon us because we are hated, It's an opportunity to live like Christ. It's an opportunity to identify with our Savior. To which I say, I would like that. I want to be identified with Jesus. But yet, I think sometimes we all too often embrace the world. Listen to these words from uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. The senior devil Screwtape talking to the apprentice, Wormwood, Screwtape says, the enemy has guarded him, talking about any of Jesus' disciples, followers, the enemy has guarded him from you for the first great, from, through the first great wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive. You have time itself for your ally, the long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity or excellent campaigning weather. You see, it's so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves, youthful hopes, the quiet despair of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, all of this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. So Screwtape's saying to Wormwood, he's saying, well, over time, we're we're just going to wear them down. We're going to make life difficult for them. We're going to make it difficult, whether it be through circumstances or through temptation, but we're going to wear them down. And you might know this well. You might feel that it's impossible at times to overcome temptation. You might feel, you might wonder if you're ever going to not struggle with a specific sin. But if you think that one sin is too big, too strong a pull on you, then you are questioning the power of Christ's death. So even though it may be a temptation, even though it may be a struggle, let us remember Christ, that we are freed from our sins, that the, that the power of that sin that once it had over us, that it might be lessened and lessened and lessened over time. That our affections, as the temptation is peeled away from us, that our affections for Christ might grow even more and more. So we must struggle against sin. We must ask God, plead with God to kill our appetite for sin and to replace that with a hunger for righteousness, a hunger for Christ. Even when adversity and trial and temptation present a great danger to us, 
and we ask God to help us. But if you know screw tape letters, screw tape goes on and says to Wormwood, there's actually another danger that might be even more dangerous. Screw tape says to Wormwood, if the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels his, he is finding his place in it, while really it's finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, a growing pressure of work build up in him a sense of really being at home in the earth, which is just what we want. So that's a strong warning for us, right? If the temptation of of sin and adversity weren't enough already, Perhaps even Satan will use the schemes of prosperity against us. That we would not depend on God, but instead be prone to self-sufficiency and pride. And so we who live in western Loudoun County, this ought to be flashing red lights to us right now. Don't let the successes, the prosperity of this world deceive us and pull us away from the Lord. You may have success in your vocation. You might have had success in raising children. Don't let the successes of life woo you away from Christ. Don't let, us, let it woo us into pride, to self-sufficiency. Jesus is praying for his people, protection, Protection to preserve their faith. Protection from the evil one and his schemes. But you'll also notice in this passage this prayer of protection. There's even more to it. It's for a purpose. It's for the purpose of unity. Right? To which you might even be looking at the Christian church today and wonder, well, man, we need a lot of that right now. We need unity. You might even be thinking, well, why didn't Jesus just pray, God, God, Father, keep your people unified? Right, protect them and keep them as one. Well, this protection is for the purpose of unity. And I think perhaps it's even like pursuing righteousness. Right? How do you gain righteousness? Well, it's not by setting your mind and saying, I'm going to become righteous. I think it's similar with unity. You don't become unified by saying, I'm going to pursue unity. Because if you did, you might be prone to peeling away some things about your faith. Let's peel this away and this away because we're aiming for unity. Well, how do you get righteousness? It's by pursuing Christ. And as every single one of you in here pursues Christ, well, you're pursuing righteousness. Well, I think it's the same with unity. It's not peeling away your differences that then unifies you. It's by everybody pursuing Christ together. And as you do, you are aiming for, striving after the same goal. That is Jesus. So our solution to pursuing unity is gazing at Christ. If you know anything about rowing, rowers... They don't row each one as hard as they can and and do it on their own, right? They're with a team, with a crew. 
and they have to row in sync or else their labors are futile. They're going to spend way more energy not going near as fast to where's their destination. It's not in front of them. Their destination is behind them. So how is it that they achieve their destination? How is it that they cross the finish line? It's not by turning their head and looking for the finish line. It's by keeping their eyes focused on the coxswain, listening to his voice, following his commands, that they all row with great vigor at the same time in sync, pursuing the same destination. And so may we as God's people gaze upon our Savior that we might be striving after the same thing, Jesus. And as we do, there's something being produced in us. It's a unity that Christ is praying for. So it's the gospel that unites us. And I think sometimes it's, not I think, I know, it's easy to be distracted from that. Because if that was what we thought about constantly gazing at Jesus, we would be more prone to talk about Jesus and less prone to talk about our political persuasions. We'd be filled with love and humility that results in a closeness with Christ. We'd be quick to listen. We'd be slow to speak. We'd, instead of trying to win an argument and prove our point, we would speak with humility and love and in a tone to persuade and show the excellencies of Christ in all of our life and the goodness of his ways. We'd be promoting biblical ideas with a persuasion or a, a tone of persuasion and love. So Jesus is praying for his disciples. He prays for their protection. But then in verses 17 through 19, we're going to see Jesus prays for something else. He prays for their sanctification. So follow along as I read again verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is asking the Father to sanctify his disciples. Right, that's a big church term. In case kids in here, you're like, what does that mean, right? It's a big church word that your parents use sometimes, only on Sundays usually, not usually during the week, right? But they use it, or your pastor might use it. It's a big fancy way of saying that they're set apart people. They're set apart for a purpose. They're set apart for God. And in that process, being made like Jesus, looking more like Jesus, so Jesus is saying, sanctify, set my disciples apart. Put them aside for your work, Father. So how is it that we're sanctified? Well, it's pretty clear. Jesus, in fact, couldn't be more clear. He says, verse 17, right? Sanctify them in what? In the truth. Okay, well, what do you mean by truth, Jesus? Your word is truth. So it's through God's word. It's, it, it's, it's by adorning the gospel with our lives, believing the word, that, that by living that, we're setting ourselves apart for the work of God. We're devoting ourselves to his word. We've even done it this morning, right? You've read the word, you've prayed the word, you've sung the word, we're preaching the word now. It's the word of God through the application of his spirit, which changes us. 
So the more the word permeates deep within us, the more we'll know, the more we will love, the more we will cherish God. So it's the word that sanctifies. It's the word that transforms us into the likeness of our Savior. And then in verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus sets himself apart. He's consecrated himself, right? He's setting himself apart for his mission, which is what? It's the cross, which he will encounter in just hours. So this is a prayer of sanctification for the purpose of mission. So even you and I, Jesus is praying that we would be consecrated, that we would be set apart for the purpose of the mission. That is to proclaim the gospel, that the world might know who he is. And so you and I, we can't live in our own little Christian ghettos where we don't encounter non-believers. So if you're in the neighborhood or you're in the store, find a way, go to the park. If you don't have kids, that might be creepy. So get somebody else's kids from the church and say, hey, I want to bless you. You take your wife out on a date. I'm going to take your kids to the park while you go have some lunch or some dinner. Take the kids to the park. Find a way to encounter other people that have kids at the park. Share the gospel. We have to be ones who are delighting in Christ and sharing the word. Christ is praying that his people would be set apart, they'd be sanctified, that they'd be a people sharing the gospel. So Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying a prayer of protection. Protection that their faith would persevere. A prayer of protection from Satan and evil. And he's here praying for sanctification, that they'd be a people who were set apart, that they'd be distinct from the world, but not in the world. Or not, not of the world, but in it. That others might believe through his people. So may God protect Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. May God sanctify Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. That all glory would be to God through Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. Let's go now to our Heavenly Father.